We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. And welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast. This is a ministry of the laymanslounge.com. And we, we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. Or as uh, Dr. Baycoat said the previous episode, uh, what was it? It was like from the ground theology. What, what was your verbiage there? Uh, the, yeah, theology from below. Theology from, might still that. From above. Yeah, where we exist to bring theology from below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the other line is Don, Dr. Vincent Baycoat for part two of our chat on his recently book, uh, recently released book from Brill. Um, the book is called Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News in Search of a Better Evangelical Theology. Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News in Search of a Better Evangelical Theology. Um, as you know, he's an associate professor of theology and the director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton. And uh, He's uh, author of The Political Disciple, A Theology of Public Life, and then The Spirit in Public Theology, Appropriating the Legacy of Abraham Kuyper. Yeah, thanks for doing this part two with us. We don't want to be rushing. This is good stuff. So, so okay, on the previous episode, you, um, you had, we had sort of ended with um, men mentioning these four stages that are, that, like, that are common to minority evangelicals. Um, or at least who start as evangelicals, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you set the stage? Can you set the stage for that, and then maybe just give us, give us, sure. give it to us? Sure. So um, the point I'm making there is, I was trying to find a way to talk about uh, the common experience that many evangelicals have, and I, I always like to say many because you can always find exceptions, mm. and um, and honestly. I mean, I haven't gone through those four stages. I just know people who have. I mean, because I've never thought about I need to make a break for it. Mm -hmm. But but I mean, going back decades, there's always people who say, look, I, I got a jet. Uh, and so um, this alliteration thing came to me. Right. So, um, so the four stages are the delight phase. Say someone comes to college and they get involved in evangelical ministry in varsity crusade campus uh campus crew now i guess um navigators etc and they love the the bible focus of it they love the fellowship and it's just great and, and maybe for some of them they've never been in this kind of um bible saturated reality and so they're very excited about what's happening uh in in that situation uh and and it may be it's just a different world from the church they came from and, and that church may have been, you know, faithful, et cetera, but, but they're getting a different flavor and it's a flavor they like mm -hmm. uh, because perhaps of the kinds of things they're learning in Bible studies, et cetera. Yeah. And they're having, and they're enjoying going to conferences or retreats and it's just awesome. Uh, so, the, but the, after delight stage, there is a dissonance stage because at some point a conversation will emerge or an experience will occur where they become aware of the fact that they're they're not just in a place where it's just about studying the Bible, but that there are also cultural realities that they're a part of. Yeah. A lot of times that happens 
uh, around the question of politics because an election might roll around and, you know, the majority of African-Americans are, uh, you know, they, they vote for Democrats. Uh, at least since the 60s, that's been what, what that situation is. And so, uh, and so they, um, they get surprised that there's a presumptive you know, expectation that if you're a Bible-believing Christian that you vote Republican. Mm-hmm. And this is like completely foreign. It's like, well, that's not in my church. That's not the way that we roll, right? And so there, so it's dissonance because it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. That's mm-hmm. weird. It's, in other words, it's, it's, you're discovering that everything is not just, uh, and it's not an easy coherence with everything or an easy resonance with everything. And then you go um, from that stage to the distress stage, because uh, for many people, they find out it's not just about politics. It's also about what they discover to be limitations in terms of theological discourse or what is to them limitations of theological mm-hmm. discourse because there is either hesitancy, uh, for example, of talking about certain questions of poverty and race or engagement in society. Uh, but there are other ways of talking about, say, certain po- political issues that people are happy to talk about, but they're less inclined to talk about race, for example, or if they do talk about race, it's, it's primarily willing to talk about it only in terms of how individuals uh, relate to each other. So there's a narrow conception yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, and then there winds up being, um, you know, questions about whether certain ways of talking about uh, questions of justice, how those things are related to talking about, uh, you know, what, what it is to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. And so they discover that, you know, the accumulative effect of a lot of those experiences leads people to be in distress. And also sometimes those experiences are because they're discovering that they're in a cultural reality. Uh, and that cultural reality, often there's a presumption that the culture within that organization is just a Christian culture and not a, a modern contextualized, uh, you know, Western culture. Wow. But that, you know, it's a biblical culture and then, well, what... And, but, and, and so, you know, what kind of songs you sing, mm-hmm. what kind of speakers are invited. And it's always, it's in a certain domain and then other things that are not, uh, suggestions you make are perhaps, you know, listened to, but not acknowledged or not acted upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, I think people have um, experiences of people um, championing, say, uh, Jonathan Edwards, or George Whitfield. Let's use that as an example. Who about slaveholders? Okay, uh, and but then uh, people being uh, very zealous for criticizing Martin Luther King because of some of, of his failings, uh, mm-hmm. but not but no criticism of an Edwards or a Whitfield. And mm-hmm. so um, those types of things create distress. And then at a certain point, it just gets to a level where people decide they get to a decision phase. Now, am I going to stick with this or am I going or do I have to get out? And, uh, you know, some people stay and some people go. Okay, you got I have like 48 questions packed in each one of those. <laughs> okay. You knew that was coming. So, okay, let's say let's hit that first one. Um, the f- first stage of delight. So. So just by way of summary, we're saying like 
maybe so we're saying someone from a minor like a, a minority in northern america and they they became a become a christian and joined well, they a, already were a christian or they already were so my question there specifically is what have you seen if someone grew up like a minority for example grew grew up mm-hmm. like in an evangelical church how, sure. how is are they yeah. a little more uh yeah just so, desensitized to that and they just go with it or does it boil uh, I, I honestly i think it's case by case some people yeah it's just the world they inhabit mm. you know i mean my kids my kids we go to an evangelical free church mm. now when i was working on my I, mean, I grew up in a national baptist church i went to a southern baptist church when i was in college mm-hmm. i was you know first i did kind of the world tour churches thing while i was in seminary uh <laughs> then i did my internship at an african-american uh baptist church then we were at a, a great uh, Baptist church, one that this is another conversation, but one that's to me re-enchanted, if you will, or saved for me the black preaching tradition mm. uh, by showing me how little I really knew about it. Um, and then, uh, but since we've been here at Wheaton, we've basically wound up at an evangelical free church most of our time. Mm. Um, so my kids grew up in that. They've grown up in a church that's predominantly white, but somewhat multi-ethnic. Um, and, and uh, but my kids have also been just suburban kids in a way. So, so and, 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 but I think they've benefited from the fact that my wife and I are very culturally fluid. So I think they wanted being culturally fluid. Mm. So they're aware of these types of questions and we talk about them all the time, but they don't feel a need to like, I want to change churches or yeah. whatever. So, so they wouldn't necessarily. Somebody else might grow up in one and they go, you know, it always bothered me that there weren't enough of us there. Or it always bothered me that we never had anybody who looked like me preach. Mm. Uh, we only had people who looked like me who were in the worship team, but never people who were in positions of authority or positions mm. of, of preaching, et cetera. Mm. Or in some cases, people might say that they... Uh, that their their church tried to be multi-ethnic, but it just didn't work. And, mm. and the way that it didn't work for them, uh, that that creates a problem for them. And there are others, it was okay. And they've never thought to to raise any of these questions, but something might happen, you know, during their college years and their early adulthood, where all of a sudden the questions they never thought about come to them. And then in some cases they discover that um they recognized that they had developed a tolerance for just putting up with stuff that maybe they shouldn't have put up with in some cases. So you had mentioned that you, you attended a, like an, an African-American Baptist church that you, that you really oh, yes. liked. So my yeah, thought yeah, is yeah. if, if there's sort of a, like a, I guess a predominantly white evangelical church that, that is sound, mm-hmm. um, but they're just like, <laughs> just, operating they're part of the problem right and on the bigger the bigger level why even try to polish that that turd if you will if you will why not why not just stay at the african baptist church and build that out or and here's the other idea and i I think i might have asked you that this before but i wanted to i I don't know why my my mind keeps going here why can't there be i feel like there's there's so many like-minded people now Mm-hmm. of of all of like all races right mm-hmm. even so, even like some white people as well as minorities mm-hmm. sort of have this shouldn't shouldn't all these people maybe like you know what 
let's let's start something. Why? Uh, why many is- people have tried that, yeah. and many people have failed. Mm. Uh, I would just direct listeners to the uh, recent Christianity Today article that critiques multi-ethnic churches. And the point isn't, it's just that the multi-ethnic churches have not delivered on the promise of, hey, we're all together. Because here's the problem. All those people together, they are not a cultural people. Somebody's culture is going to wind up being the dominant culture, mm. especially if people are not intentional about saying, what culture are we building together and how are we really bringing the contributions from all of our cultures mm-hmm. to create some kind of mixture of a thing? Okay. Uh, and particularly, I mean, what, well, how do you do leadership? How do you manage time? What kind, what kind of preaching style? What kind of music? What kind of guest speakers? What right. Sunday school curriculum? Which publishers are you going to use? What, what books are you recommending to people? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, a lot of times what has happened in, and I don't think that it's a matter of um, ill intent at all. I, I just think it winds up being a manner of, um, uh, there winds up being a presumptive reality that you know, these multi-ethnic churches, multi, a lot of these multi-ethnic churches are ideas that somebody had in an evangelical type of setting, right? It wasn't like necessarily an African-American setting or it wasn't, I mean, I think they're, they're also, I think, Pentecostal and charismatic versions of it, but um, but what often happens in these churches, if you go there and it's multi-ethnic, if you close your eyes, you think that you're at a white church, predominantly. So right? because cult, because the way the preaching is, yeah, and, and and a lot of that some some of it's style, but also sometimes it, what kind of examples do you use when you connect the preaching to public concerns? Which public concerns do you talk about? Mm-hmm. Um, what you know uh what what are the landmines you know uh yeah. you know at, at one level every local church like has its own landmines right mm-hmm. but but there, but there's i think the other side of it is that i think for a lot of people the landmines will tend to be ones that are typical evangelical type of landmines um yeah. and so uh i think people so some people will, will experience that and they'll say um i liked going there uh, I mean, in fact, there, there's somebody I, I once who said, I mean, they have disappointments with the multi-ethnic church. They didn't stop going. They're still going because they're obviously there are things about that church that they like, that they they have friends and networks there. I mean, there's ways that they feel like it's their family. Uh, and so they put up with that dissonance in their family. There's some other people, I think, who feel like I they can't be there because or, or, or stay there because they feel like they are always a guest and never a person that is really an actual member of the family who contributes. And so I think that, that's really, I think, one of the things that happens. Uh, and then I, one of the things that's honestly happened a lot of the times is, is that if you wind up having a more predominantly ethnic leadership rather than a predominantly white leadership, uh, sometimes the majority, if, you, if, if the congregation is, say, 50% white and the other part's multi-ethnic, when you get that transition in leadership, there have been a number of situations where the where the 50% of white people diminishes mm. when they're under that leadership. Now, I you know, I can't speak to what those, those reasons are, uh, but but apparently that's happened, you know, a pretty significant amount. Whereas you've had a lot of minority people who are willing to be in churches that mm. are that have a you know a predominantly white leadership or something like that. And now, again, can you find exceptions? Oh, yes, you can. 
I mean, I, I have friends who pastor churches like this that, that are the exception, mm. but, but there's a lot of, of other circumstances where when the leadership shifted to being more multi-ethnic, um, you know, some, you know, a, a notable percentage of the white population migrated. And what is suggested by that is an unwillingness to be under the leadership of non-whites. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in other, words, in other words, you can sing for me, you can entertain me, you can preach for me in a way that's exciting, but you can't really lead me, right? So I think that's the, that's the perception. Uh, and and some, in some cases, I mean, that may be exactly what people have experienced. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, again, these are not, these are not new things. And, and, I, and, I, and I also want to add, it's also important to say, that doesn't mean you can't find multi-ethnic churches mm-hmm. that are getting it right or doing it better, et cetera. It's just that it seems to be the case that, I mean, it's really a challenge. And at one level, should that be a surprise to us? I mean, you know, you and I briefly talked about like, you know, you live in Hawaii. Well, I mean, just how well are the different types of people living well, actually living well together mm-hmm. and in social circles together? Yeah. Right. In Hawaii. So, uh, you know, to to make Revelation seven, nine, like exist in a church community in a way that is um, really like all these different people worshiping God together, building each other up um, and, you know, and they and they and they are family, but they also but they haven't forgotten who they are culturally. I mean, this is a hard thing. This is a hard thing because for, for any in any organization, I mean, something's going to be the dominant culture. Yes. So what's going to be the dominant culture? Hmm. You know. Uh, and so I think that we we have to be honest about that. And I think sometimes the assumption is that hey, let's all get together and do this. And everybody's ex- and people are excited about the idea. But there may not necessarily be at that moment the thinking about, okay, well, what kind of culture are we going to be? Mm-hmm. And with that kind of culture, what are we going to do in terms of the type of music we have? You know, and again, what topics are the topics we tend to talk about? You know, what, 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 you know, not what is our website going to look like in terms of what we show people, but what are people actually going to experience in their lived reality yeah yeah in in there you know and, and so that it's it's just a challenge uh i i mean and i don't say that you know in terms of like a hopelessness type of thing i just think that what often happens and, th- and i think this, this sort of cuts through all, all four of those things mm. is i mean if you're the majority culture you're like a fish in your kind of water you don't think about being in water if it's not your water you're aware of the dip, the water that yeah, you're, yes. you're aware of that the pH is different that maybe it's a little more salty than you're used to or whatever yeah <laughs> um, and and so you're aware of that but if you but if you start telling people hey I think you might be associating your culture with just being biblical people I mean it takes work to recognize that oh wait I've got a culture and maybe what I'm doing theologically what I'm doing in terms of my church practice what I'm doing in terms of my faith rooted, hopefully public commitments, mm. that those things also include cultural commitments. But if, but if it's what I'm used to, I mean, I've got to do work 
to become aware that I'm in a culture, mm. right? So, I, and I think that's anywhere. If, if I go to Japan, now I'm gonna know that I am not Japanese, right? Yeah. But the Japanese are just, they're just living life. They're doing <laughs> what they do. Yeah. Right? Right. And, but you know what? If a Korean goes to Japan, well, okay. For many reasons, a Korean knows that they are in Japan. My historical reasons, we're not going to get into that. Okay. I'm gonna, I'll let my Korean friends sort that out. I'm not going to speak for that, but, but I've learned, I've learned, you know, to let others have, have that conversation because that's you know, the whole history type of thing, but they know, they know that they are somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, right. th- this is what I'm, so this is my knee jerk re- response is like, ah, oh, it kind of sounds, so I'm now, I'm now thinking, so no matter what, what that scenario sucks, really sucks for the minority at it, no matter what. Uh, it doesn't have to. Actually. But the other part is this though. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the good, good intentioned yeah. white, white church planter. It mm-hmm. sounds like, you know, he or she is damned if they do and damned if they don't. Uh, sometimes. I say sometimes because I think I think it depends upon how you're how you're going about doing what you're doing and how much you're trying to have what I would call a humble awareness, a humble awareness that everyone needs to have. And I think, you know, it it winds up being a situation where, you know, it, 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 no matter what you do, you're doing something wrong. Um, I think that can happen if a person thinks, you know, uh, I'm going to go to the city to plant a church because they need more churches in the city. It's like, they got plenty of churches in the city. Why are you going there? What do you think is so special about what you're going to do there? (laughs) Have you even met any of these other people, these other churches? Have you thought about partnering with these people, et cetera? What is it that you think you're bringing, right? So sometimes I think there can be, and this, this is, I think it's just, it's, it's a gift and a liability of, I, I would call, a kind of missionary zeal, right? You, you're excited about wanting to do something for the Lord in a particular place, and you're thinking out of the zeal. But your zeal, like, it, you know, happens in a world where there are other people. <laughs> so you have to think about these other people, Yeah. right? So it's not like you're the only person that's ever planted a church in this particular place, perhaps. Right. And, and, and so you have to, I think, just be aware that, um, well, here, here's why I think it's a good idea that for this kind of church and this kind of place where there may be already several other churches, mm-hmm. um, because maybe there's a particular dimension of ministry that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Right? But even then, how are you thinking about that ministry? Mm-hmm. Are you thinking about just what you're bringing? Or are you thinking about coming there more as a learner than as a deliverer? Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't mean deliverer as a deliverer of content. I've got something to bring that to provide. So I think um, it's, it just has to be that kind of work done. And I think there's the assumption that sometimes people are very excited about what they've learned and what they want to contribute. And it's all well-intended. Um, and they might want to do something multi-ethnic, et cetera, but they're not completely aware of what they need to learn. Uh, some people, I mean, they are, I mean, they, they do a lot of homework and they know it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a hard thing because you do, let, let's say you want to cultivate relationships, you know, the person in the majority culture, they want to cultivate relationships with people that aren't like them. 
you you probably have a lot of work to do to build trust. Yeah. So the people, so the people don't think, why, well, why are you coming here? Do you want to know us? Do you want to work with us? Do you care about us? Or are we just a project? Mm. Right. And so, and and I and I think this is important to say. I don't think that most people are probably thinking, well, you're just a project. Mm-hmm. Right. I think there can be the unintentional uh, communicating that that's what's going on. Yeah. But that, but that, but I think that that's just part of what ne- there just needs to be an awareness about. Okay, what what exactly am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What do I want to do there? What do I know about what's there? Right, right. And so, then also, what do I know about how much I know and how much I don't know? Mm-hmm. Right. And how do I know about what I need to learn? You know, and, and how much more I need to learn than how much I'm thinking about what I need to bring with me there. Right. And I think sometimes th- and a lack of awareness around that can create a situation where you can have a completely well-intentioned person or couple and it winds up being a situation where people think, okay, they never met with us. They didn't talk to us. They just showed up like they were like hot stuff, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, you can create all kinds of unnecessary things just because of not doing certain kind of work. So earlier you, you had mentioned this very helpful term of humble awareness <clears throat> and um, how does a humble awareness not, th- this is, this, I'm going straight to practicing, right? That's how does what? a humble awareness not turn into walking on eggshells? For yeah. example, yeah. yesterday I'm sitting, I'm sitting at the pool at my house and there's a, a rental next to us, like a, a Airbnb rental. <clears throat> And this dude comes down. I've been going, <clears throat> I've been going back and forth. I'm super nice guy. I haven't met him in person or whatever, but he's the guest and I'm helping him out. He comes down, he's and he's swimming. We're we're just shooting the breeze. He's an African-American dude. I'm a Caucasian dude. And he hasn't like a an accent, mm-hmm. like a cool accent. And I'm like, this guy's got a cool accent. Mm-hmm. And I, at that moment, I was operating in an attempted humble awareness i'm like should i ask him about his like i was remembering my conversation i'm like should i ask him about his accent um and i thought well what's my motives i'm like well i'm just curious about it like and i actually want to get to know this guy and then i was also i had another but i had so there was a humble awareness right but at the same time i in talking with him i i i probably had 20 questions that were just in my mind uh-huh. Maybe you could diagnose this normal, quote, quote, normal, right? Uh-huh. I'm yeah, fishing sure. water. Getting to know your questions. Normal questions, but I'm like, I I ended up being a horrible dialogue partner because I didn't want to offend this guy. Yeah, sure, sure. And I saw I was on eggshells. So how does, yeah. you follow what I'm saying there? Like, I I'm do. like, man, I do. how do I put this to practice? Uh, you learn to crawl and then you walk, mm. you know? Um because because what I would say is what you're recognizing is maybe I looked at my toolbox and I had a few tools, but I need more tools. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I got to get more tools so that I know how to do that. Right. Um, and so the humble awareness is like you're aware that you need more tools. It doesn't mean don't do don't use the tools you got. Yeah. <laughs> right. It just means you have to learn to venture those things. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, is just uh, how do you have. A healthy curiosity, aware of the fact that sometimes some people will wonder, they might wonder, but if you're sincere, I think if you're sincere, I mean, 
just ask him where he's from. Yeah. Right. And say, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, you know, was it, was it a regional accent, et cetera? I mean, I think it's always, it, to me, it's always an intriguing thing to ask people about their accent. Yeah. Right. It's a different thing if you said to him, you know, your shade of skin is really kind of interesting. <laughs> right. That's, that right. is not the same question. Right. 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 So I think it's, it's discerning the difference between asking a, a legitimate question about somebody's accent, which people, would, I mean, if they were German, you might ask, are you German or are you Austrian? Okay, maybe you wouldn't say that. You might well say, what, what accent is that? I, it seems yeah. like it comes from a certain region of Europe. Where is that from? You're mm-hmm. going to ask that. If it's, a, if it's an English person, I mean, English, Irish, Scottish. I mean, look, in some of us, I mean, you know, we go, okay, I think I kind of know where that is. Yeah. It makes sense to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we can ask those things out of genuine curiosity. Sure. But, but, I think, but I think part of what you're recognizing, though, is... Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because there's a legacy of mistreating people on the basis of characteristics and thinking totally. that you can that's it. That you can know everything about a person because you saw them or you once met somebody like that or you saw a documentary or you read, a, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, okay, no, you you know a little bit. Just ask questions. Mm-hmm. And if somebody and, and and some people is true. Well, some people be offended, some people. In some cases, look, it doesn't matter what you say. <laughs> some people are going to be offended because they may be in the process of just working through stuff, and they and and they are having and, and they are going through their process of recalibrating how to trust people and to um, and to understand the pe- and to try to discern the difference between people when people just generally want to know them, yeah. or when people are looking for wanting to be the white friend so they can say. Uh, that they're a white person that has that has a black, friend, you know. Right. I mean, so, um, so some people that they're just working through that stuff. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, everybody's got to work through all these types of things. Hmm. I mean, I think the the bottom line part of this has to be: if you are a Christian and you are a servant of God and you are uh, a disciple of Jesus and you're trying to um, be a person that is wants to make disciples of all nations. And it's also not pitting Luke 4 versus Matthew 28, which sometimes people do. You know, Luke 4, you know, that's about a lot about you know, liberating the oppressed, bringing sight for the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. Um, you know, that's not just about spiritual versions of that. That's also about the actual social circumstances of people. Mm-hmm. You got that reality, but you've also got the reality of go make disciples of all nations. Same Jesus said it. So he, it's not a competition in his mind. So, right, so, so those things work together. Um, sometimes people emphasize one or the other, right? Okay, fine. They do that. You know, hopefully if you know somebody over time, you can help bring a little balance one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But if we're disciples of Jesus, then, I mean, priority number one is our conformity to him. Our conformity to him is going to include, I think, being the kind of people that are always aware We've got all these open vistas of sanctification. And if we have these open vistas of sanctification, that includes how I need to do the work of knowing how to live well with others and love my neighbor as myself in a way where I refine my discourse with other people Mm -hmm. or where I develop multiple strategies for dealing with the fact that some people, you know, I mean, they're not particularly, they're they're just doing what they do. Mm. And, and they're and they're they're not they're not suspicious of all white people, et cetera, but other people, 
they may be in a moment hmm. or in a phase where they have well-earned distrust because of experiences. And the thing is, you can't know that. Yeah. Right. And what, what, what you can do is to just be sincere and friendly and inquisitive and, and for it to be clear that you actually care about them as a person and not as a one or two dimensional object. Right, right. And again, a lot of those things just take time. And sometimes in short interactions, you, get, you can't always convey that. But, but if you're continually working to be that kind of disciple of Jesus who's thinking about that expression of neighbor love, I think, um, you know, the, you're, 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 what you're thinking about is, look, I really want to be like Jesus, which, me, which doesn't mean, and all the ways I've been taught already have told me enough. Well, I'd like any of us to like to come to believe that, uh, it, you know, because, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the Kuyperian list on Facebook, right? This is not a list of Wesleyans who are talking about being entirely sanctified. So nobody on that list should be thinking about being anywhere close to being entirely sanctified. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all, of all the people that ought to be thinking about how much we need to grow is people who make it, who say they believe in total depravity, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, that has a strange way of hanging on in certain ways. Yes. You know, right? And if it does, then however much we're being sanctified, there's still more sanctification needs to happen in multifaceted dimensions. If we really Mm -hmm. believe that, then we're always operating knowing that we need to be these growing disciples of Jesus in multiple ways and, and that there are ways yet to be discovered that we need to learn to grow. And if we're doing that, I think, when it comes to the question of race, I think then what's happening is we're saying, look, um, even if I don't understand something, my response is a response of inquiring rather than throwing up walls, rather than defending, rather than getting into a battle of assertions. Yeah. I want to know more and maybe even ask, maybe there's something I need to know here. I think there's something I need to learn here. I think when it all boils down and, and you could even diagnose my diagnosis here. So if, for for me as a uh you know as a white man um when i think like i think of um your stage stage two of dissonance dissonance and and stage three so like stage two it might be like why are we talking about jonathan edwards like and i think even owned a slave right and then yes over and against martin luther king you know Um, my my i have a thought about that and then the question my thought is it's like um let's let's even say not jonathan edwards let's just say you know john piper or something right Uh, someone who you know his his life seems like pretty sound or whatever but he's like focusing on theology you know he's he's focusing on the great commission if you will um so i'm just trying to frame this Uh i I think the at the end of the day like you said like it's not the rub isn't necessarily interpersonal like it isn't necessarily if I heard you wrong, let me know. But it's not necessarily interpersonal between the minority and like, you know, the the majority people. It's more like once we start talking about what are we majoring on? Right. And um, and one of the major areas is politics and voting. And so that's why I wanted to ask this question. Uh-huh. We kind of talked about it before, but at the end of the day, and this is where everyone could take me to school. I am unabashedly a one issue voter i'm yes. like oh because i don't believe anybody i don't know what's going on i I'm like, I'm like, what? i just um i'm gonna be a voice for the voice and, and i'm not even saying that 
the the Republicans actually do anything, you know, and I think Roe v. Wade, I think the Republicans were the majority. So anyways, I'm not even hitting that. I, I just, my thought is person A says, I think, uh, um, you know, abortion is wrong. And, um, and I know like Trump, like, I think he like put something in place to, to uh, stifle late term abortions, right? For example, mm -hmm. but even if he didn't, let's just say he just lip serviced and at a minimum, sure. he didn't increase anything. Okay. And then let's just say side B where they, they champion it and they, and they never call this person human. And let's not even say they champion it, but they, they open the doors for more of it. For me, I'm like, and, but then people go, you need to be pro-life. Um, what do they say? Crib to, I forgot. Womb to tomb. Womb to tomb. Right. And I, and I actually, I'm like, okay, I totally get that, but I got to land somewhere. Yeah, right. Sure, so sure. this is where you could get me come corrected. Sure. So my thought is, you know what? Every other issue out there, be it poverty, be it race, um, be it school loan debt, <laughs> be it whatever that is. These are all things that, you know, and I care about a lot. Some of them a lot. You care about some of a lot. Mm -hmm. But at the, at the end of the day, I got all these school loans, but um, mm -hmm. I at least have a voice. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just like, it's, I got to at a minimum, if I got one shot with this, I got to go with with those who don't have the voice. So I think what I said was probably classic. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I don't know. You, I give you open doors to, to have me come corrected and just yeah, yeah, sure. diagnose uh, me there, diagnose me. Well, all I would say is that um, everybody has a perspective. Nobody's omniscient. Everybody's perspective is limited. And there are different things that make things, certain things rise higher for people than others. Sure, and sure. and so I think the problem is for I think a lot of minorities is that um, the people who talk about being pro-life strangely have a disregard for the neighborhoods of the of, of where minorities are. It's like it's like did you even show up to say anything about public schooling here? Did you say show up anything here about economic opportunity? Mm -hmm. Did you do anything about public health here? And the point is, is that you, you want to talk about saving babies and you want to criticize family breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and the point is that there's necessarily a critique to be made. But then you don't offer anything about the actual lived experience of people in those neighborhoods once they got out. And by the way, strangely, you don't want them in your schools because you keep moving away to new suburbs, et cetera. And uh, you, you have better schooling because... Uh, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to, I mean, the housing and urban development basically saying, look, if white, if, you know, property values are going to go up for white people, they're going to go down for minorities. I mean, the government said that, okay, and, and the banks followed suit in that. That was fundamental to wealth creation. That was fundamental to, if you're talking about school systems being, uh, you know, you get more dollars based on what your tax base is. You got, obviously got a higher tax base where you've got a higher, um, higher, you know, real estate values. Um, who do you think is going to be having a better life opportunity, better life chances, right? And you've got the legacy of that is the thing, right? And, and, and it's not, and by the way, it's actually not a legacy just in terms of like, nobody does that anymore because there are still studies that are showing, you know, in terms of mortgage lending, et cetera, how there, there still tends to be a bias against, certainly against African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And so my point being that for a person to say, I'm pro-life. It's like, well, you sound like you're pro-birth. Mm. What they would say, 
Yep. It doesn't yep. sound like you're pro about anything. I mean, because what about those children that get born in those neighborhoods? So what do you say about those children when they're five years old, when they're 10 years old, when they're 20 years old? What do you say about those people then? And I think the presumption is, honestly, some people are like, I don't say anything. What are you talking about? Right. So which I'm willing to give yeah. the benefit of the doubt about that. But what I would say is, yeah, but you vote for people who, who seem to have policies that do not that at least don't tend to operate in ways that are addressing these neighborhoods. Now, please understand, I'm not saying. And of course, you see, because when the Democrats have been in charge, it's just made all boats rise either. Both parties have failed, in my view. That's why I'm an independent. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, so the point is that it's complicated. Yeah. Because if my lived experience is one where it seems like the people who are who are talking about being pro-life strangely champion policies that seem to make things um, in my neighborhood invisible or antagonized, right? And, and, and those interests seem to be ignored, uh, then, you know, that, that winds up being a problem. Now, I do think, I mean, it's, it's a much more complicated situation than that, but the point is, I think that's the, that's the general response a lot of times. And so I think what we have to recognize is this. Uh, one is that A, uh, no political system in the world right now is, is all that great. Um, there are good ones and there are better ones. I think you're not, all things being equal, the United States system is better than a lot of other places. Uh, but even then, this is not a system that dropped from heaven. It has all kinds of problems. Um, and never mind the fact, by the way, I think it's always important to say this from any podcast. Anybody who's thinking that God cares that much about the United States forgets the fact that there are no, there are no Western Hemisphere countries mentioned in the Bible. Right? <laughs> so... Um, he cares about us because we're part of his creation, but the idea that we're somehow central to salvation history or something, it's a little bit delusional or a lot. Yeah. So, so, so I just think it's important to, for us to recognize that. But, but further, I think I would say that um, whatever we're doing with our society building attempts, politics, culture, mm -hmm. economics, et cetera, those are all things that have a sign that says subject to refinement hung on it. And so, we, and so when that's the reality, whatever the issues are that we're dealing with, I mean, it's all going to be very imperfect and um, whatever, you know, contributions we make are penultimate, right? And now penultimate doesn't mean, okay, so therefore do nothing. No, if you're, if you're the United States, you actually have, in my view, a level of political agency most people have not had in world history. And that's an opportunity to steward your life in creation, your sort of cultural mandate type stuff in the political domain in a way that um, gives you a possibility of bringing some kind of public good as an expression of neighbor love through what your political commitments are. Doesn't mean run for office. Doesn't even mean, it doesn't even mean you need to be like reading every like policy position or whatever. It doesn't mean at least think about voting, mm. at, at least in major elections, okay? We got a local election coming up next week, seeing signs all over the place. I'm planning to vote, but um, a lot of people are probably drive by. They're not even thinking about those elections. Mm. Okay. Mm. But, but that's an opportunity to attend to the local, right? So the local, the national sector, we, we have those possibilities and people can run for office for those positions, et cetera. Mm. There's just a lot of opportunity there. Uh, and so I think for some Christians, they should really think about ways to, to I think, act upon that. But 
it's important to understand that whatever we are doing with those things, and however we're dealing with questions of race, ethnicity, et cetera, all those things you know, are under the umbrella of how we're trying to serve God in his world so that neighbor love is expressed in a way that is hopefully facilitating at least you know, incremental improvements in terms of human flourishing. And there's just a lot of work to be done in terms of attending to human flourishing. Yeah. And my sense of a lot of white evangelicals, people that are, if you will, a phrase I heard recently, evangelical adjacent in the sense that there are reformed people and Lutherans who never use the word evangelical. You're like, well, you believe what evangelicals believe. They're like, yeah, I'm not using the word. How about that? It's like, okay, fine. But <laughs> there are all these people who are basically biblicists in certain ways, not biblicists in terms of like, I mean, look, I can get into yeah, yeah, I'm reformed. I'm confessional. It's like, you know, let, okay, fine. Whatever you want to call yourself. The point is that you believe the Bible is completely true. Mm-hmm. And you believe that Jesus is the savior and you believe that the gospel is to be shared. You believe mm-hmm. Christ is central. So people believe those things. There are a lot of people who believe those things who have, who don't recognize the limitations in what, in, in, in their approach to, um, you know, theology and public good, because they're unwilling to ask sometimes or don't or not it doesn't occur to them to ask that there might be other theological questions mm. they would know about those other theological questions if they actually you know invited the theological questions to people that are not from their community hmm. right and the thing is we all need to do that like i don't know what the theological questions are if you're like in croatia i don't know what they are if i'm in zimbabwe uh you know so i i, I don't know uh those things sure right yeah. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Vincent Bacot. Um, join us next week for part three, the following week for part four, and then until um, <laughs> we finally finish the next eight, eight, and then <laughs> we just did a lot of like diagnosing, but you know what? It was fun. Let's yeah. uh, we'll chat some more down the road. The book is Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News. I wanted to hit the word performing so hard, but we'll, we'll do it one day. Reckoning yeah. with Race performing the good news in search of a better evangelical theology. And then uh, that's, that's from Brill um, linked on the show notes. And then you could visit vincentbaycoat.com. And then um, you're on Twitter at, at V Baycoat, B-A-C-O-T-E. We'll link all these. And also there's a, a good article that you had uh, written on. I think it was Theophilus, the Theophilus Institute, where you touch on a few a little bit of a, a few hot hot buttons but you do so really well like you're not just playing games with it so we'll link that up um brother thank you for your time thank you for the book and thanks for helping me to, to to think through these things all right a lot of fun we came for salvation we came for family We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad.